Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am what I am. What I am needs no excuses. Oh, I'm Kev. <laughs> yeah. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. This is the second part in the second clash in our beef season. Last week, I took us through Michael Jackson's iconic thriller. Uh, Kev, just tell the listeners what you're going to be taking us through this week, please. So I will be taking us through Prince and the Revolution's Purple Rain. Quite a famous album, I think. You may have heard of that one. Yeah, it's, it, certainly. If you've never heard of the album, you'll have heard of some songs on it. Yeah, just a bit. So there is a quite storied rivalry between Michael Jackson and Prince. Last week, I took us through some of uh, what had gone down between the two. Will you permit me to continue with the next chapter in that story, Kev? Certainly. Bring the beef. This is chapter four. If you want to hear chapters one to three, you'll have to go back and listen to last week's podcast. So chapter four, I call The Bad Vibes. Did you know, Kevin, that Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson approached Prince to duet on the song Bad? I did not. Mm -hmm. They obviously failed to come to an agreement because Prince does not appear on Bad. In a 1997 interview with Chris Rock... Prince, although at that time he wasn't known as Prince, so the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince, that works. He said, you know that Wesley Snipes character, referring to the video, Mm -hmm. bad. that would have been me. You run that video in your mind. The first line of that song is, your butt is mine. So I was saying, who's going to be saying that to whom? Because you sure ain't going to sing it to me. And I sure as hell am going to sing it to you. So right there, we've got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so clearly it never happened. What a shame, though, because can you imagine a Michael Jackson and Prince version of Bad? That would have been fucking phenomenal. I mean, it's it's one of those great what ifs. I mean, who knows? Who knows how it would have turned out? But you hope that it would have been as amazing as it as it would be in your mind. Exactly. But it will have to stay in our mind, unfortunately, because sadly, neither Prince nor Michael Jackson is with us anymore. But you know that already. And, and neither neither wanted to say whose butt was theirs. <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, we've got three more to go, and um, they're all really good. <laughs> I can't wait to tell them what is really good. <laughs> okay, I guess we should probably go through Video Kill the Radio Star. Yes, so it was my selection this week, and um, I went with something a little bit different. So my selection was uh, the video for Pulp's bad cover version. It's a it's a brilliant video. So essentially, to to describe it, it's a load of impersonators of a load of really famous musicians covering the song, akin to a band aid recording. Yeah, that's that's it, really. But it it's brilliant. It's so funny. So I'd, I'm very familiar with Bad Cover Version. Never seen the video until you asked me to look at it for this show. 
It's a fucking brilliant send up because whatever you think about the motive behind those songs and even the quality of some of those songs, the videos are always so cheesy and so forced. Yeah. There's some phenomenal bits in it. I mean, I think the the bit that made me laugh the most um, is the auto-tune on the share uh, impersonator. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant, though. I mean, there's lo- so amongst the celebrities that appear, you've got Robbie... Well, sorry, celebrity lookalikes. You have lookalikes of Robbie Williams, Kylie Minogue, David Bowie, Bono, Noel and Liam Gallagher, Mick and Keith, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Jarvis Cocker, but not the actual Jarvis Cocker, Kurt Cobain, which is mad since this was done in 2002 and he was long dead by then, and Brian May, confusingly played by <laughs> the actual Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> it's, it's it's brilliant. It's it's just a it's a really it's a really good video. It's a really good sound up, and I like the song as well. It is a re- it is a good song. Can we just say some of the celebrity impersonators? The Kylie, the Bowie. How good is the Bowie at doing Bowie's voice? Yeah, but can we also say that the Tom Jones one is not good? Tom Jones and Bono. So the Bono, I'm sure that's the guy from that Alan Partridge episode where he gets someone to pretend to be Bono. They neither look like nor sound like, but (laughs) fair fair play to him because, you know, the, the video's made by him. Brilliant stuff. Good choice. So as as usual, we will tweet out the links for it and uh, you can get to in, enjoy the unique joy that that video has. Okay. Kev, do you want to start taking us through Purple Rain? So Purple Rain, the sixth studio album by Prince, also soundtrack to the film of the same name and is the first album, as we have uh, said before, uh, where the revolution are credited on the front. So there is a reference to him on the back of... Uh, 1999, but this is the first time it's Prince and the Revolution. Uh, it was released on the 25th of June 1984 on Warner Brothers and was recorded between August 83 and March 84. The album itself is widely considered to be the most pop of Prince's career, and that kind of accessibility was certainly reflected in how, how well it did. It's also one of Prince's most collaborative albums as well. One of the keys to it was him allowing band members to to contribute to the album and, and their ideas. And, you know, some of the key members, so Matt Dr. Fink, uh, who played the synths, uh, the guitarist Wendy Melvoyne and uh, keyboards played by Lisa Coleman were sort of core members of, of the revolution and had a massive um, impact on how, how the album developed. I just want to say, Wendy Melvoin was 18 when this album was recorded. Can you imagine being aged 18? Do you want to join Prince's backing band? Do I want to what? What? Okay, and Prince in 1981, 82, wasn't Prince in 1987. He hadn't become that global megastar yet. But as you said, 1999 had got a lot of traction. 18 years old. Phenomenal. And she's a great guitarist too. Yeah. However, like, and this does link back to our previous clash. Wendy and Lisa's dad played in the Wrecking Crew, which obviously links back to uh, Pet Sounds because the Wrecking Crew yeah. were, were were part of that. And the funny thing about Prince allowing the band members to contribute, it mirrors the plot of uh, Purple Rain. What has to happen over the course of the film is the kid, the character that Prince plays has to learn to allow the bands to be part of what's going on. 
Although, let's get this very clear, is that whilst they had and were allowed to contribute, there was one boss, and that was Prince. He was the main lyricist, and he was the melody maker. They obviously are amazing musicians and contributed massively, and there are still songs on it that Prince plays everything, like he did on his first five albums. This is the first time that he's really allowed anyone in. So so can I just... There's a quote from Wendy Melvoin, and she, she's talking about the creative process. An interview in in Mojo in 97, she said, uh, we were absolute musicians in the sense that Prince respected us and allowed us to contribute to the music without any interference. I think the secret to our working relationship was that we were very non-possessive about our ideas. Now, I think the last line speaks volumes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are other quotes from Matt Fink in particular I could read, which say that, look, you know, he was definitely the boss, as you said, we came along for the ride and it was an amazing ride itself. And I mean, if you were part of Prince's band, then you worked. So as we, as we talked about, he had a prodigious work ethic. So at this time, he's not just, you know, he's not just recording his stuff. He's working with Apollonia 6. He's got loads of side projects going on. He's just creating so much. Um, so, it's talk, so there's talk of him, you know, working 20 hours in the studio and having engineers come in in shifts. They did fucking shifts. That's mad, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's fucking wild. So the last three songs on the album were recorded live at a show that they did at First Avenue in Minneapolis, and it was a, a benefit gig. Um, but the rest of the album, was most of it was recorded at the warehouse, um, which was in St. Louis Park in Minnesota, which was a, a suburb of Minneapolis. And the warehouse was exactly what, what the name tells you. It was just a warehouse, and he got the engineer to come in build a soundstage in the studio and that became the launch pad. That's how how much like sort of control and and everything that he put into it is that he it had to be the right space for him to build this. It wasn't just the space, it was everything. He basically wanted complete creative control. And I want to talk briefly about how the film came about. But again, Matt Fink said in a 2019 article on Louder Sounds, we were basically a boot camp a disciplined regimen of dance class, acting class, and band rehearsing throughout the whole summer. Prince had an acting coach and a dance instructor brought in. Prince just worked non-stop. He never slept. And yeah, and I mean, if you think about the 1999 had sort of brought him greater into the mainstream, and it had it had, had decent sales. Like, it's it sold something like 3 million copies. Some... Spent 90 weeks in the charts. That's, that, it was a phenomenal success by any stretch of the imagination, apart from perhaps measuring it against the success that Michael Jackson and Prince would go on to achieve in the rest of the 80s. Well, if you th- if you think about it, he's had five albums before, like the last one's done really, really well. But he demanded, he demanded to Warner, make this movie or I'm going. <laughs> I mean, the, the chutzpah of the fella to, to do that. Even after this, okay, a three million CERN album, 90 weeks in the chart. It's, as you said, there's some fucking balls on him. So he said that to Warner. He basically said, yeah, give me a film or I'm going. So Warner said, yeah, okay. But then they they basically tried to sell the film around several studios, none of which were willing to bankroll the film. Fortunately for Warner, they then realized that somewhere down the back of the sofa, they may have had their own film studio. <laughs> uh, so they decided to fund it themselves. And I mean, it costs it costs them seven million dollars to make. So you've got the you've got the production costs of the album, then you've got a movie on the back of it. So this this is quite the investment in Prince. 
but it it pays off. So as I say, it costs seven million to make. It, the movie itself made sixty eight million dollars. But well, yeah, like a month before the movie opened, like it certainly helped shift the album because it sold two and a half million copies. So incredible. In terms of pushing Prince to the mainstream and people knowing who he was, it certainly did that. And it ultimately spent 24 weeks atop the Billboard 200 and was in the chart for 122 weeks. It done well. Yeah, that's more than two years. And it, it, it absolutely blew him up um, into the, the, the Prince that, that we came to know. So there is one more thing I would like to say, and it is a sort of sub-chapter in our beef section. Sorry, go on. So I just wanted to to clarify what we were referring to as the um, the sub beef section. Uh, is it the pastrami? <laughs> Carpaccio. Let's call it the Carpaccio okay. section. <laughs> um, so we mentioned last week that one of the links between these two albums was iconic songs that were recorded right at the end, after basically everything else on the album had been done. So what is known is that this particular song was definitely the last song recorded on the album and that it was written and recorded because Prince basically thought, I need something else here. I need something bigger. It is alleged that the inspiration for this song, I'm going to tell you the song in a minute, came after attending the 1984 Grammys in which, as we referred to last week, Michael Jackson had walked away with eight awards, including Album of the Year for Thriller. Prince went away thinking that, I need something that's going to propel me to that level. And in one night, he wrote When Doves Cry. Which, as we will get on to, is not the bad song. No, it is not. I don't know if that story's true. I like to believe it is because it works with our link. So there you go. Well, and I'm fine to agree with you that it's true because I also had it written down in my notes. (laughs) Good. Sorry. Carry on. So, yeah, I think really we've covered the sort of the background, the genus to to the album. So the only thing really to ask is, Tim, how did you first come across Purple Rain? So at the risk of repeating myself from last week, my brother, (laughs) my brother was banging to Prince. So he's seven years older than me, brother. So in 84, he was 10. I was not. (laughs) But I, I remember him. In the 80s, I remember him listening to Prince in his room loads when I was trying to go in and annoy him and he was didn't want anything to do with his four-year-old brother. Fuck off, you know, fair enough. But he'd listened to Prince loads. He was listening to Purple Rain loads. And it's ever since, it's stuck with me. Although, Simon, if you're listening, Prince's last tour in the UK, what, 2015 was it? Yeah, the hit and run tour. Yeah, he went to see him at the NEC in Birmingham. Didn't get me a ticket because he claimed he could only get one ticket. Yeah, so I'm sure you got the very last ticket for the gig. My fucking arse. You, I'm never forgiving you for that. Never. <laughs> hey, sorry. Do you know what? I think I've just uh, realised what one of this week's uh, Twitter promo clips is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Is it, would, would it be something that's very personal? <laughs> no, you know, pr- I'm not really bothered about having seen, not having seen Prince live. Yeah. Like the thing that always, always got to me is that you hear the, um, the Glastonbury story. So they came so close and then some dickhead leaked it and Prince went, nah, not playing. And I, I believe that was unfortunately a year that we were due to attend. Well, a year that we attended. Uh, yeah. So was that the Beyonce year? Yeah, 
We didn't see Beyonce. We were Queen to the Stone Age. We've well, talked yeah. about that before. We have indeed. Um, so for myself, so many of the songs on this album I heard growing up and, and, and stuff like that, but the actual album Purple Rain, I didn't hear till later. I'd always sort of liked Prince, but I'd never really got into him until until later point. So there was um, someone that I worked with, like in my early 20s, and they were banging to Prince, and they'd lent me a copy of Purple Rain, and I discovered everything about it from from that. Like as I say, I knew a new Prince, and and you know during the nineties he had his slave uh, thing on his face and the whole sim and being symbol now and and all yeah. that. So it it was it was a bit later that I first really heard this album, but yeah, I, it was great when when I heard it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, should we do artwork? Yeah, I mean, what what can you say? That again, it's a very well known iconic cover. It's Prince sat on a motorbike. It's actually a photograph taken on the soundstage in LA that's made made to look like uh, like an apartment sort of back alley in uh, New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said motorcycle. I said Prince dressed in purple astride his bat cycle. <laughs> I mean, he looks he looks great on there. He does, doesn't he? I mean, so the. The moniker, the purple one. This is the genesis of that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And like he, he looks, he looks great on it. The font, the font works really well. I think in terms of our... stop talking about fonts. No, I love like... a font. I love a font. <laughs> it is a good font, though. It is a good font. I got to give you that. It is a, it is a good font. And in terms of between the two albums, as this is a, supposed to be a clash, it's the better cover. It, it is. It is the better cover. So there's there's something you've not mentioned, which I'm surprised that you haven't mentioned. So there is, aside from the photo, sort of adorning the frame, if you like, of that photo is essentially a paisley pattern. And that is not an accidental design choice. It is because of Paisley Park. The Prince's headquarters. Anyway, sorry. Which I I, I only rel- well in the last few years discovered he didn't actually own Paisley Park, you know. Did he not? No, it was rented. Was that Michael Jackson as well? <laughs> no, it was uh, George Harrison bought it. Like, everyone was going round buying. <laughs> well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So should we um, start getting into the album? No. Because I want to talk us through the next chapter in The Beef. Okay. This one I call Balls of Fury. <laughs> this is chapter five, by the way. So, in the late 80s, apparently, Michael Jackson and Prince were sharing a studio. During which time, they took their rivalry to the only place that you can take a rivalry of that magnitude. The ping pong table. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> so according to engineer david z prince won this epic battle of table tennis after michael jackson dropped his paddle to protect his face from a ball prince had smashed right at and apparently prince crowed did you see that he played like helen keller once again, I am obliged to say, allegedly. <laughs> there you go. I mean, that that doesn't fit with your image of Prince as a, <laughs> as a fu- frenzied, furied ping pong player. Ping pong pugilist. <laughs> Double alliteration. Nice. A whiff-waff-whacker. 
Oh, yes. This is gold. <laughs> Second Twitter clip for this week's show. In the bag. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so from that, I think it is time to actually start the album. It is. Go on. So we open with Let's Go Crazy. <laughs> I mean, how do, how do you even fucking begin to talk about this? What a start to an album. Like, that sort of religious revival at the start um, and like sort of the exhortation to follow Christian ethics within it sort of, you know, the de-elevator within the lyrics is is supposed to, is a metaphor for the devil. It, it's brilliantly up-tempo. It's such an epic start. I mean, it, who, who starts an album like that? Well, Prince, Prince does, that's <laughs> A couple of facts. It was the second single from the album released 18th of July, 84. Number one in the US. Number two in Canada. Have a guess. Where did it go in the UK? It was top 10. So, you know. Six. No, seven. So, so all I want to say about the British um, record buying public is that they have made some, some wise decisions in the past, but the only, the only number one that Stevie Wonder ever received in the United Kingdom was, I just called to say I love you. So that's all you need to say. So they have made some wise decisions in the past, you're right. We talked about Pet Sounds the other week. In the 80s, something happened to the British record-buying public, and I'm going to suggest that something was Stock Aitken and Waterman to give them a taste bypass. It's even before that, because, I mean, Rennie and Renata were were big in the 70s, so let's, let's just... Granddad by Clive Dunn was number one in, in this country in the 80s. This <laughs> and Grandma, We Love You was super it's, grand. Exactly. <laughs> super grand. Fucking super grand. <laughs> Google it. Yeah. I mean, good luck, American listeners, because we are going fucking niche. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, there's another lyric I want to call out. Look for the purple banana. Now, it has been suggested that Prince has been talking about some esoteric thing, sort of like El Dorado, something that's mythical, you know. I mean, given Prince and even other things on this album, I think there's a fairly obvious euphemism that I'm suggesting Purple Banana might be related to. (laughs) Can't think what you're talking about. No. (laughs) However, the reason I wanted to refer to that lyric, fun fact of the day, Purple bananas are actually real. Really? A species of banana called Banana Sao Tome is purple. Well, there you go. The reason they do not appear in the shops in this country is because they spoil very easily and so do not survive the long journeys via ship. <laughs> okay, I've got nothing to add to your banana fact. But it's a good fact. No, Come good on, fact. you've got to I give like me that. Purple bananas are real. No, like I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with your facts. I am just gonna pivot us back to "Let's Go Crazy" because it is a fucking brilliant song. Oh, fine. If you want to talk about fucking music, fuck Christ. All right, fair enough. It is a fucking brilliant song. I just wanted to say that. So we talked about uh, "Beat It" brilliantly synergizing sort of pop rock. I mean, the guitar solo in it, like it's yep. it's an amazing synergy between the between the two the two styles, really. Yep. And and I don't mean this as a criticism to Michael Jackson, but Prince didn't need to get Eddie Van Halen in the studio. No, he did not. I'll fucking do it myself, lads. <laughs> what a start. As Well, as you said, to start an album, 
with a church organ and a eulogy, that's balls. That's balls. That's, again, we talked about this last week. That is faith and belief, confidence in your artistic vision. This has got everything. It's got a great beat. It's got a belting riff. And as you said, it's got that face-melting guitar solo at the end. And a freak out. It's just, it, we've said this a few times on previous clashes. It's a statement of intent. Here I am. Boom. Yeah, and um, certainly someone who has learned the lesson from Sergeant Peppers, start strong, and as we will go on to talk about, end strong as well. Yes. Just before we move on, a couple of things I want to call out. So, and we've, so this is two callbacks to previous clashes. Firstly, as we've spoken about before, this is very much the inspiration for Americans, which is this track that closes Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer. In terms of samples, Let's Go Crazy has been sampled 24 times. And here it's just a nice synergy. So, you know, I'd love to say that we've planned all this, but it's just a happy accident. Amongst those 24 samples, it has been sampled by Public Enemy on the track, Brother's Gonna Work It Out, and by Easy E on Easy Does It. I can also tell you about a noted cover version, and you will not guess the band. Uh, I'm not going to try then. Go on. Incubus. Wow. <laughs> I didn't see it coming. I did not see that coming, no. Um, I don't mind Incubus. Science is a fucking great album. I quite like Incubus, some of the stuff at least. Yeah, I didn't expect them covering prints. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there are far, far worse artists that have covered songs on this album that we will come to <laughs> later on. Okay, let's move on to the next song. Take Me With You was the final single released from the album. It's a duet with Apollonia Catero from the Apollonia Six, a band that um, Prince mentored and produced. And the song itself was originally intended to be part of their album, but Prince decided, nah, it's too good, I'm having it. And <laughs> fair enough, you know. But at least he kept Apollonia kept Catero on it, on it, so, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's great, really. I really like this, yeah. Yeah, there's a brilliant rhythm to it. The cello section is is really good. It, yeah. it, adds a, it adds a great sort of depth and lushness to it. You know, there's there's not a huge amount to say because it's just well, it's well produced and it's well put together. It is. So, so a couple of things I want to say. So I, I really like the simplicity of the bass line here. And the bass line is literally just the bass note from the, from the chord structure. And I think that simplicity just just drives the song forward really, really effectively. The sound of this song, it sounds like a call forward to a lot of what ends up on Parade, particularly Girls and Boys. I really like it too. I think it's a, a really, really good song. It's a very different sound to Let's Go Crazy, mm. yeah. but it's a very strong set and track. This has been covered by, amongst others, Charlene Spiteri from Texas. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> So we move on to the third song on the album, The Beautiful Ones. And we've we've talked about earlier within the album that this was Prince at his most collaborative, that he he worked with um with the band to develop develop songs and stuff like that. Not on this one. No. Prince uh, produced, arranged, composed, and performed every fucking element of this song. One of three songs on the album where that is the case. So the beautiful one is thought to be there has been some quite a bit of debate about this but the current thinking amongst printologists if you like is <laughs> is that it was about uh, Denise Matthews his one time protege and girlfriend uh, also known as uh, Vanity so Vanity was in Vanity 6 who became Apollonia 6 mm-hmm. 
Yes, that is the latest thinking because that's what Prince said in an interview not long before his death. It's also been claimed it's around. It's about Wendy Melvoin's sister, her twin sister, Susanna, uh, and it was written to woo her, woo her away from her then boyfriend. So she's been quoted as saying, I can't say the song was exactly our story, but he wrote it during that time. So if that is true, then it worked because the two did date for a period. So there's something we should probably touch on here. There is... One might suggest a troubling theme here of, of Prince having romantic entanglements with his female collaborators. Now, I'm not making any accusations. All I am saying is I don't think that will be looked upon quite so favourably today as it was in 1983. Yeah, the the power dynamic, I suppose. He's mm-hmm. he's mentoring the these women and becomes entangled with them. So you can think, you know, Sheen Reist and you can... What, the punk rocker? <laughs> Callback! <laughs> you can, you know, you can think of lots of um, women who were Prince collaborators who had some kind of entanglement with him. The benefit of uh, obviously descending into Wokey Hole, you do have to query a little bit about whether, what the power dynamic was in those relationships. Exactly. It doesn't seem great, but but anyway, I, I, I'm not going to dwell on that for too long. So well, and and what what we can say is that I won't I won't claim that I've read any everything ever written about Prince. So there may well be things that that query this in a in a much greater detail. I'm not aware of of anything that particularly calls this out. But as I say, I could well be wrong on that. Yeah, fair play. Okay, in terms of my thoughts on the beautiful ones. Well, it takes a while to build, but it builds into something absolutely epic. By the by, the time this song ends, he's absolutely wailing, both vocally and on his guitar. And the the, the drums throughout this massive, massive eighties drums. I really like the beautiful ones. What I what I said was that it's a nice love song. It's very different. the The synths within it are. Like put you off kilter, like slightly offsetting, but yeah, the the end of it shows his amazing vocal range and the the boss guitars he always has within within his songs. Phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. So you said about the synths that put you off kilter. So I'm assuming you talk about the, the sort of pitch bending. Yeah, that yeah, comes with them. And and I get what you're saying there. So what I've said, and this is a callback to a phrase you've used previously retrofuturism to me mm-hmm. that I like this song a lot it has been covered by both Mariah Carey and Beyonce I'd be interested to hear Beyonce's uh, version of it I mean I do I do like this song um, it, it grows on you because it do, it starts in one way and then finishes in a completely different place and, and that's and- it sorry I cut you off there that's exactly it that even as familiar as I am with the song Sometimes I find myself two minutes in going, come on. But then always by the end, I'm like, don't stop now. Carry on. Come on. Yeah. You just want them to get to the fireworks factory quicker. <laughs> and then and then stay at the fireworks factory. Exactly. That's, uh, I've got nothing else to say. Good song. I like it. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to Computer Blue. So the song itself has a credit uh, to Prince's father, John L. Nelson, um, who was a jazz uh, musician. 
um, as the guitar solo was based upon a piano instrumental uh, written by both Prince and his father. There's also a direct credit to Dr. Fink, Wendy and Lisa, um, as we've talked about before. The song itself on the album is a cut-down version from the full 14-minute opus it was supposed to be. Have you ever heard the 14-minute version? I have, yes. I did actually check it out because I was intrigued. So what's your feeling of the full 14-minute version? So I want them to get to the guitar. The guitar is so much quicker than they do. So perhaps unsurprisingly from previous clashes, if anyone's been paying attention, I fucking love the full 14-minute version. And it's a great shame it doesn't end up on the album. I understand why. It's widely uh, acclaimed by Princeologists, as you said, as being a work of genius. And I can understand why. I fucking love it. It's got amazing guitar solo. I mean, it has got. There's so much of it, which is amazing and so avant garde, so different to anything else that was around at that time. It developed apparently basically from a pre rehearsal jam. According to Matt Fink, he said, we'd always warm up before rehearsals doing freeform improv rock jazz jams. On that day, I started playing the main bass groove, which later became Computer Blue. So the band started grooving on it. Prince started coming up with some stuff. Then we recorded a rough version and he took it into the studio and just incorporated it all and made it fly that way. I really, I like it a lot. Yeah, I mean, when I first heard it, um, I wasn't quite sure how I felt about it until it got to the to the end. And then again, I wanted more of more of where you where you got to as opposed to the start. So I'm going to talk about. There's a few things I want to come back to, but I'm talking about what I think about this song. The, the ambition behind this at the time, the themes that the lyrics of the full version explores. Mm-hmm. The guitar, as you said, is. Fucking phenomenal. The vocals are absolutely wild on this track. Even in the four minutes or whatever you get, the trimmed down version, the massively trimmed down version on the album, there's still three or four different movements and different acts within the song. It's just, it's a remarkable piece of work. I love this. Yeah, I mean, as you say, within four minutes, you've got so many different things going on. it's, It's like nothing else anyone was producing at this time. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to come back to then. So the the, the first one, there's a, there's a spoken word, well, intro in the album version, but comes in yeah. and out through the, through the, the long version. And it's Lisa Coleman and Weldy Melvoin. Uh, and it's basically an erotic fantasy of two women bathing together. Uh, so in a 2012 interview for, for Matt Thorne's biography, Prince, Wendy Melvoin, she said that, we didn't even think it was that weird psychosexual lesbian thing. I had no idea. My ass. I mean, to be fair to Wendy, she's 18 at the time. Is the water warm enough? Yes, Lisa. Then let's begin. Come on. And it's Prince. Okay, yes. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. I'm going to give Wendy Melvoy the benefit of being 18 and being a bit naive. Okay, fair enough. But whether whether or not she thought it was about that, it definitely is about that. Yeah, it is. It really is about that. Uh, so the the song, and it, again, we're talking about an actual song which isn't on the album, but we've done that before, so never mind. <laughs> it, it's well, not just, even the version on the album, it's exploring themes of dissatisfaction, of confusion over one's love life, of one's sexuality. The key theme in the song is that the narrator is a computer. 
I just want to read the lyrics from one of the verses from the extended version that I think illustrates that really well. And it's one of the spoken word verses from, from Wendy Malvoy and Lisa Coleman. Poor lonely computer, it's time someone programmed you. It's time you learned love and lust. They both have four letters, but they're entirely different words. Poor lonely computer, poor, poor lonely computer. Do you really know what love is? Does anyone think that Janelle Monet might have listened to this before she made Dirty Computer? I was literally about to say the same thing, saying, hmm, might be a dirty computer, though. It's a great song in four minutes. It's an even better song in 14 minutes. I'm a fan. Yeah, I like it too. Okay, let's go on to Darling Nikki, which has quite the legacy, shall we say. Let us bring Tipper Gore into view. The Ultra Wasp. <laughs> well, Tipper Gore, former wife of Al Gore, the former vice president and the loser of the 2000 election. His wife uh, came home one day and heard her uh, 11-year-old daughter listening to Darling Nikki and was somewhat scandalised and outraged by the um, clear references to uh, female masturbation and everything else that goes on in this song. She formed the Parents Music Resource Centre. Otherwise known as the Won't Somebody Please Think of the Children group. (laughs) And it is because of this group that the parental advisory sticker exists. Which we have referred to before. We have indeed. So the darling Nikki essentially created the parental advisory sticker. So, And it wasn't even Sugar Walls that did it. Hang on, hang on. So darling Nikki was included on a list that the PMRC called the Filthy 15. <laughs> Indeed. This was number one. It was number one, wasn't it? This was number one. So Prince not only has number one in the Filthy 15, he wrote three of the top four <laughs> songs on the Filthy 15, including Sugar Walls. <laughs> because Sugar Walls is definitely not about female masturbation. <laughs> no, of course it's not. I mean... Well, I'm not going to talk about Tipagore anymore. I mean, no. Let's talk about the actual song then. So listeners at this point may wish to go and listen again to our review of Iggy Pop's The Idiot and all of the adjectives we use to describe the songs on that album because they are all applicable here. (laughs) So my notes, they're not extensive. Drums are absolutely great. It's so stripped back and raw ethereal like you know it's dirty but it's it's great it art it i i love this song it's i thought i think it's magnificent it is magnificent i've written it's filthy it's grubby it's dirty it's smutty a new one i think i don't smutty. think we use smutty <laughs> but it is <laughs> smutty <laughs> confessions of a princeologist <laughs> um God, it's gloriously playful, though, isn't it? He knows that he is setting Middle America off. It, do you know what? So again, he's fucking with white America, and they took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. And, you know, like, you stick a parental advisory sticker on this album, or, you you know, you fulminate against the filth in it. You are sending your children to listen to this album, to this song and this album. Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's um, musically, 
this guitar part makes this song. Yeah. The drums, as you said, are great. They're massive. This is everything I love about Prince. Yeah, it is. It's it's provocative. It's brilliantly put together. It's a magnificent piece of work. Do you know who covered it? Interestingly for me, I haven't written down who covered it, so please. It's covered by the Thoos. What? So in 2003, um, as a as a B-side, they, um, they covered Darling Nikki. We are referring to Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, yes. Well, there you go. And I really would like to hear that because Taylor Hawkins will definitely get into the drums. Yeah, no, yeah, fair enough. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's it would be an interesting cover to hear that. Okay, shall we move on to the, the next track? I, oh. I don't think we'll be talking about this one for very long. No. <laughs> okay, so it's When Doves Cry. Prince's first number one single. It was the top-selling single of 1984. Prince plays all the instruments and does all the vocals on it. Go on. Sorry. Yes, it was the top-selling sing- top single of 1984 in the USA. I said we were going to come back to the British record-buying public. <sighs> so it reached number one in the USA, Canada, and Australia. Where do you think it came in the UK, Kevin? I'm going to go 30. Oh, no, 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 no. It's top 10. Top okay. five, in fact. Top five. Four. Yeah, it's number four. Unbelievable. And Doves Cry, number four. <sighs> Sorry. Okay, carry on. So they recorded they recorded the song, and they there is actually a bass track for it. But mm. Prince had a conversation with Jill Jones, a, a musician, and after speaking to her, removed the bass track because he felt that it sounded too conventional. And he was right. He was so right. So I haven't heard the version with the bass line in it, but all I'll say is that the lack of a bass line here makes it really stand out. Even on this album, it makes it stand out. Mm-hmm. And and again, I'll say, as I said about Let's Go Crazy, you compare this to anything else that was around at the time, this is different gravy. So all, all I'm going to say for, for the listeners is this is one of my favourite Prince songs. I fucking adore this. It is an immense piece of work. It is an immense piece of work. So as we said earlier, it was the last track written on the album. And whether or not the story about the Grammys was true, what is clear is that it was written very quickly by Prince because he felt he needed something else for the album after everything else had been recorded. There's so many themes to explore in the lyrics. It's about the tension that exists in a relationship, and that's both emotional and sexual tension. It was it's apparently inspired by his relationship with another Vanity Six member, uh, Susan Moonsey. But I'm just going to read the chorus, if I may. Mm-hmm. I'm just Yeah, sure. How can you leave me standing alone in a world so cold? Maybe I'm just too demanding. Maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. Maybe I'm just like my mother. She's never satisfied. Why do we scream at each other? This is what it sounds like when doves cry. I mean, can you think of another song, particularly in the 1980s, the decade of superficiality, that is so introspective, so self-analytical, so... Well, well makes makes Oedipal references. Exactly. It's, it is a work of genius, this song. Look, it's, it's the song that made Milhouse realise... Um... <laughs> How many Simpsons references are we going to cram into one episode of this show? <laughs> it is. You know, Millhouse realised, is this what it's like when doves cry? Oh, God. It's a remarkable achievement. So, there's, 
you've got the iconic guitar riff right at the start. Yeah. And the drums kick in the synths. But then the guitar comes back in again towards the end and you don't hear it at first, but then he's like, oh, fucking hell. And just, oh, yes. So you've got, as you say, you've got that guitar opening, then you've got the kind of wow, wow, wow. That, like, and then, then, the, then the synths uh, kick in. It, it's unbelievable. It is yeah. such a brilliant song. It is a brilliant song. Okay, the the, the sample stuff and the cover stuff. <laughs> so, an interesting an interesting coincidence. This has both been sampled thirty seven times and covered thirty seven times. I don't think I want to know who's covered this. <laughs> you you don't. You absolutely don't. <laughs> There's only one of the samples I want to call out, and you ain't you ain't ever guessing this. So I'm just gonna say it. <laughs> it was sampled. On the song Pray by MC Hammer. What? <laughs> You've got to pray, pray just to just make, to make it, it today. And apparently Prince sanctioned it. MC Hammer requested went to cry. And Prince said, yeah, off you go. Go ahead, baggy pants. Do your best. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. That was unprofessional of me. <laughs> Uh, now, to bring the mood down somewhat, as I said, it has also been covered 37 times. Amongst the cover versions are the following three acts. And and I just want to get your reaction after I name each one of the three. Okay. The Bare Naked Ladies. Or Cough. Damien Rice. What? Razorlight. Oh, dear God. Like, serious, seriously. <laughs> like, Razorlight la- of Covered Windows Crack. The last one annoys me more than anything else. I can't think of a band, whatever, that I hate more than Razorlights. And yes, that includes Mumford and Sons, who I detest. I fucking hate Razorlights more than you can imagine. I just can't. I can't my, my brain can't comprehend, like, one, what you're fucking thinking. Like, why, why do you think you, you, Razorlight, <laughs> can cover that? And then... Oh, God, it, it's going to be so anodyne and so... So razor-light. If it was a sandwich, it would be white bread with white bread. <laughs> Just bread with bread in the middle and then bread. Any butter? No, it's just bread. <laughs> so uh, we move on to our next song, which is I Would Die For You. So another um, Prince song that evokes Christianity. And there's loads of references to sort of Christianity and to, to stuff in the yeah. So if you're <laughs> so so if you're evil, I'll forgive you. For example, is a lyric in this song. Can, can I read some of the early lyrics that go to that line? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something you'll never understand. I'll never beat you. I'll never lie. And if you're evil. I'll forgive you by and by. And exactly. I mean, um, who'd have thought Prince had a God complex, eh? <laughs> it's not like he's made any references or anything. <laughs> so there is a bootleg version of this song Ooh, knocking about. I've not heard that. So it was recorded with the revolution and members of Sheila E's band, including Sheila E, who is a fucking brilliant drummer. She is. And she's drums on it. Apparently, it runs to a 31-minute jam. 
get in. That's my kind of length, that is. Come on, now you're talking. So this was the first of the three tracks that were recorded at the First Avenue show in August of 83. One thing that we haven't said, so we talked about Wendy Melvoin's age when this album was recorded. She was just 18. This gig, it was her first live gig. Not just her first live performance with the Revolution and Prince, just her first gig ever. That's, what a start! <laughs> I mean, what can what you can also say? And we've talked about like the work that the engineers and everything did. And you know, recording live is is in, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. And the the recordings are absolutely crystal clear and perfect. Yes, they are. That is very, very true. Although there were edits and overdubs that were performed at Sunset Sound Studio in LA in September of 83 to to get these songs, what you might call album ready. So they aren't exact replicas of what was performed during the gig. But even so, you ain't doing overdubs and edits unless something sounds really crisp and clear. Yeah. So, yes, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. It's phenomenal recording talent. The main body of the song is recorded in these, in these, uh, in the live recording. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's a fantastic thing. I mean, talking about the song itself, it's got a brilliant rhythm and tempo to it. And it sounds, how do I describe it? Like it sounds urgent and vital. Yeah. That's a really good, that's a really good turn of phrase. The sort of, there's a driving synth struck bass part, which creates that sense of urgency. Uh, I don't have a huge amount to say about I Would Die For You. It's good, but it isn't hugely memorable for me. I mean, I, I, I disagree. I think the, the rhythm and the tempo to it perfectly fit the title of the song, that I Would Die For You. Like, so you have that kind of up to, like your heart rate's up and that's how the song comes across to me like I know mm-hmm. it doesn't really do very much for you I I think it's I think it's a, a great song and really puts you right in right in that um that moment for me anyway okay fair enough this is all about opinions and mine are the right ones <laughs> <laughs> should we go on yeah let's go on so uh we go on to uh baby I'm a star so I don't have a huge amount on this, to be honest. It's a really fantastic live performance. Yes, it is. The only thing I would say about it is if I'm being ultra critical, it possibly stays around too long. Yeah, I uh, can agree with that. I like it, though. It gets yeah. me up dancing. It's... Yeah, I like, the, I like the song. I think the sound, you said something similar on I Die For You, it's got a very distinctive live feel to it. You can tell yeah. it's recorded live. It's the most 80s sounding song on the album. Uh, that's not a criticism, just is. No, although the song after like has very 80s drums on it. This is the, well, you, well, as does the second track on the album. Yeah. Third track on the album, my apologies. So there's a backwards spun lyric at the end of the track, down the start of the track, actually. And apparently that says, like, what the fuck do they know? All their taste is in their mouth. Really? The fuck do they know? Come on, baby. Let's go crazy. One fact I have about this song. So this was apparently included on the first cut of Tim Burton's Batman. And it was obviously once Prince had agreed to record the soundtrack album to that film. It's bad. The the soundtrack album is bad. The film is good. The album is bad. Agreed? Yeah, it's 
it's not his best work. Anyway, so after he'd agreed to record the soundtrack album, uh, it was eventually replaced with Trust. And you can tell because Trust sounds a lot like Baby I'm a Star. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's it's yeah, not it's great, a- but it's perfectly enjoyable. It's it's a good song. As I say, it possibly stays around a little too long, but I'm being a bit ultra critical there. Um, I mean, you don't like long songs, which possibly doesn't bode well for what we're about to talk about. You are incorrect. <laughs> so that leads us nicely into the next song, the closer to the album, the title track, Purple Rain. I mean, this is fucking wild. The song was originally written as a country song to be sung as a duet with Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Can you imagine what that would be? I cannot. I have no concept of what that would sound like. And thank you, Stevie Nicks. I mean, like, you've done loads in music, so, you know. But thank you for being, by feeling overwhelmed by what had been sent to you. She didn't feel that she could record it and said, yeah, it's too much. Like, I I just can't, I can't say it. So Prince asked the band to have a go at it. And when he heard Wendy Melvoin's guitar chords, completely changed his entire conception of how that song could be. Mm-hmm. And wow. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, that the last song stays around too long. This does not. And I like a short song. I like I like a garage song. I like, but this, what a way to end an album. We've talked about album craft and We've opened with a banger. We've finished with a fucking epic. So the first three words I've written in my notes, epic, simply epic. (laughs) Yeah. So as we've said, this was also recorded during the First Avenue gig. God, I wish I was at that gig. Fucking hell, yes. Especially because of what I'm about to say. The original version was 11 minutes long. (laughs) There was another verse. And a, another solo, which Prince basically edited out. So, of course. He, <laughs> of, course there, of course there was another solo. It's Prince. He's allowed to. Yeah, of course he is. But he, yeah, to, to get it down to, for, for length to cut an LP, he, he edited it down. Um, so a couple of facts. It was a third single released. It was released on the 26th of September, 1984. This did not reach number one in the US. It reached number two in the US. Do you know what kept it off, number one? Uh, it's going to be something that I really hate, isn't it? It was a British act. Was it Zig Zig Sputnik? It was not Zig Zig Sputnik, although if you are saying Love Missile F-111 is something you hate, then we are going to have problems because that is no, a fucking tune. No, that no, that is a banger, but like I, I assume it's going to be something I'm not going to be pleased about. Wake me up before you go-go by Wham. Okay, you were correct. <laughs> Is that not just because of your sisters? <laughs> no, it, I mean, it, it's a, okay. It's a perfectly presentable pop song. It's just the living... It's no Purple Rain. <laughs> well, what? yes, it's no Purple Rain. And living in this country, you hear that song a lot. Yeah, you do hear that song a lot. Uh, okay, so well done to Belgium, the Netherlands and France, because you got Purple Rain to number one. Uh, again, so it's a top 10 hit in the UK. Give me a number, Kev. What do you reckon? Seven. No, six. Six. But still. Yeah, so it doesn't even make top five. <laughs> like fucking idiots. 
bunch of dicks. I mean, okay. we we at least have the defense that well, uh, we were three. We had no funds of our own to go out <laughs> and buy it at the time. <laughs> no. And and listen, as musically uh, educated as we are, I'm going to say no awareness of what popular music was at the age of three either. I mean, I, had, I was in the middle of my Thompson Twins phase. Then. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, we said it was recorded at First Avenue. And I want to link back to the film here. According to a 2014 article by Alan Light on TheVerge.com, one of the people who attended the First Avenue gig was Albert Magnoli, who directed the Purple Rain feature film. So, this was just before the film started shooting. And he was so taken by the song that he decided he wanted to... wanted it to be the the centerpiece if you like of mm-hmm. the film so so this is his uh recounting of of what happened after the gig he was backstage with prince and he asked about the song prince apparently replied you mean purple rain it's not really done yet magnoli then basically pitched the idea of it being the centerpiece the, the big finale of the, of the film and prince thought for a minute and said if that's the song can it also be the title of the movie which, if it's true, is a, a lovely little story. Okay, I do have a little um, postscript. Okay. Not to that story, but just in general. So this song is apparently the last song he ever played. Mm. So the Atlanta show, which was his last ever gig, he played this song. And what a fitting epitaph to an amazing, amazing artist. Agreed entirely, and I will come back to that when I go through the reviews. To conclude on the song Purple Rain, well, before we go through our thoughts on the song, factually, to conclude, 56 cover versions of this, including by, and there's nothing as, well, maybe there's one. This is, anyway, there are four artists I'm going to read here that I picked out from those 56. Etta James. Ooh. Exactly. I'm very interested to hear that. Leanne Rhymes. Less interested. Mm. <laughs> the Water Boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> UB40. <laughs> <sighs> Did you ever watch uh, Home Improvement with Tim Allen? Because the noises you just made were basically the theme tune to Home Improvement. <laughs> Okay, okay. I want to talk about the song. It's fucking massive. It's colossal. It, the huge drums, right from those opening chords from Wendy Melvoin, soothing yet mournful is what I've written, which is wanky, I know, but you know. Then the vocals come in with fucking loads of reverb. Everything's got reverb. There's a reverb all over this mm-hmm. track. So can we just speak about the reverb? Because I think it's really important. Mm. Um, because it kind of evokes the the loneliness of the protagonist. Yes. That, that kind it of does. echo echoing longing. It works, it works so well. And obviously with the soundscape that's created, it's it's beautiful. It is. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, sadness and longing loneliness yeah you've put it perfectly there and then when you are emotionally on the floor after what three and a half minutes two verses two choruses then 
the guitar just screams oh, into God. life. Goosebumps every time. So obviously in preparation for The Clash, I've listened to the album as, as normal a couple of times. And I've had the guitar refrain, if you like. So if I, if I was truly honest with my... Uh, so I have had White Town in my head, but <laughs> what has overridden it <laughs> has been that guitar refrain because it just keeps coming back to me in waves. It's beautiful. It's mournful. It's longing. It's so the, the way it, it's like a primal scream at times. It's just unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. it's a. I don't have the words. I do not have the words. No. So I've got seven words. <laughs> Sorry, I had to count them then. <laughs> what a way to end an album. Yeah. Have you got anything else to say? I, uh, I mean, the only, th- the only thing I can say is that Prince definitely learned from Sgt. Pepper is that ending with an epic, mm-hmm. something to send people away with, mm-hmm. that's a way to end an album. It is indeed. Okay. Have you got anything on reviews that you want to... Um... So, yeah, I've got a couple, couple of quotes. That okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring to the table. I'm sure you've probably got some of the same, or I've got certainly one that we're gonna read out. <laughs> <laughs> I think God is. Um, so Kurt Loder in Rolling Stone compared him to Hendrix and praised him for merging black and white music styles. So the quote says, "Like Hendrix, Prince seems to have tapped into some kind of extraterrestrial musical dimension, where black and white styles are merely different aspects of the same funky thing." Kenneth Partridge, in a retrospective review, um, described Let's Go Crazy as arguably the best intro in pop history. So I'm just going to add to that Kurt Loder review from Rolling Stone. He also went on to say, Prince's rock and roll is as authentic and compelling as his soul, and his extremism is, is endearing in an era of play-it-safe record production and formulaic hit-mongering. I wonder if he was referring to anyone in that review there, Mr. Loder. I've just got one more before I go on to um, our learned friend. So Stephen Thomas Erlewine in All Music, and again, a retrospective review. He said that simultaneously, the album is more focused and ambitious than any of Prince's previous records. And that Prince was consolidating his funk and R&B roots while moving boldly into pop rock and heavy metal, I mean... I mean, there's no metal in there. There's no metal in there, but I understand the pop and rock stuff, at least. Yeah. With nine superbly crafted songs. Taken together, all of the stylistic experiments add up to a statement of purpose that remains one of the most exciting rock and roll albums ever recorded. Stephen Thomas Erlewine, apart from the heavy metal nonsense, I agree with everything you've said there. With due um, exasperation... What's he got to say? Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not its not as bad as his previous efforts. I've got to say that. But, um, I mean, his review was so long-winded and fucking... Of course just, it was. So this, these are only excerpts. Okay, so Robert Criscow, our good friend Dobby McGee, he said, like the cocky high speed of the brazenly redundant Baby I'm a Star, the demurely complacent, un- incidentally, he spent... I'm already annoyed. Well, so incidentally, he had two typos in complacent, but anyway. 
The demurely complacent thank you signals an artist in full formal flower and he's got something to say. But insofar as the messages are the same old outrageous ones, they've lost steam. He may have gained maturity, but like so many grown-ups before him, bearing in mind Prince was 25 when this album came out, like so many grown-ups before him, he gets a little blocked making rebel rock out of it. Oh, fuck off. The fuck do you know about the messages that Prince wants to convey on this album? Fuck off, you're a prick. I hate you. I mean, like, I understand what he's saying. I don't. I still don't. I understand the words. I do not understand the point. The point is that he's cleverer than everyone else, and he's not. <laughs> he's not. He's just a massive cockwomble. <laughs> he is. Shall we move on from this bellend? Yeah, let, let's... At some point, I'm going to get so angry reading his reviews out that I am going to have to stop it. Uh, but which, not yet. Which means I'll have to take over. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Legacy. What's there to say about the legacy of Purple well, Rain? <laughs> well, the legacy is that it became, it turned Prince into a megastar. Exactly. It sent him stratospheric, just like Thriller did for Michael Draxon. Mm-hmm. Michael Draxon? I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> So I'm going to quote the the Ken Partridge review again from from, uh, Billboard. He says, in 1984, there was only one man in America more popular than President Reagan. His name was Prince, and he was funky. Is right. Yeah, absolutely is right, lad. It established Prince not only commercially as an A-lister, but also culturally as 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 a creative... Genius. I've used the word before. It is still widely regarded as one of the greatest albums ever made. And to to hammer that home in terms of the commercial aspect of it, at least, at one point in 1984, Prince simultaneously held the accolades for the number one album, number one single, and the number one movie in the United States charts. And that just... What more do you need to say? I mean, that that is cultural dominance. (laughs) Exactly. So I want to leave the last word on the legacy of Purple Rain to Rolling Stone. In their write-up of the album for the 2020 500 Best Albums list, uh, where, as you said, it was at number eight, they said, and it speaks to something you referred to earlier, The songs from this album remained at the centre of his repertoire for the rest of his life. It's only fitting that Purple Rain was the last song he ever performed on stage. What more can you say? Indeed. Uh, That's a a lovely way to to finish it, really. Okay, so from that poignancy, let's talk about the beef between Michael Jackson and Prince. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll do one now, and then we'll do one... Uh, would you want to do it before the scoring of the albums or after the scoring of the albums? Because we've got two to go, so it's up to you. Let's do it. Do you know what? Let's even as a, as a postscript to the scoring. Fine, fine. Okay, so we've got two chapters to go. Chapter six, I call the Box of Delights. Again, <laughs> for people who aren't based in the UK and weren't kids in the eighties, Google it. So I mentioned earlier about that they had been in talks for Prince to duet on Bad. During that period, Prince apparently turned up at Michael Jackson's house. According to Quincy Jones, he was holding a big white box, which was labelled Camille. Apparently Camille was Prince's pet name for Michael Jackson. So a quote from Quincy Jones. 
The box had all kinds of stuff, some cufflinks with Tootsie Rolls on them. Michael was scared to death. He thought there was some voodoo in there. I wanted to take it because I knew Michael was going to throw it away. <laughs> thing is, he says all kinds of stuff, and he only mentions one thing in the box. So I'd like to think that there was a massive box with only a set of cufflinks with Tootsie Rolls in <laughs> Which, like... Given the quotes that have come come forward, a lot of them are Quincy Jones related. <laughs> Quincy, are you suggesting are you telling the truth? <laughs> uh, are there any Quincy Jones quotes on the last one? Uh, no, there are not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Before we get into the scoring, I think it is uh, best song, worst song time then. Yes, I think it is best song, worst song. Would you like me to go first? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm going to do my worst song first. It, it is hard to pick a worst song on this album because I don't think there's a really weak song on it. But I have to pick one. And that is going to be I'd Die For You. I Would Die For You. It's good. Uh, to me, it's just not particularly remarkable. It's not particularly memorable. And it's the weakest song for me on the album. And actually, I think that may be why it's the shortest song on the album as well. But that's me. My best song, Purple Rain, Darling Nikki, and When Doves Cry are all more than deserving candidates for this title. But none of them is my favourite track on this album. And that is Let's Go Crazy. Fair enough. It's my favourite Prince song. It's always been my favourite Prince song. To me, it's one of the best opening tracks to an album I've ever heard. I love Let's Go Crazy. Best song. How about you? So I'll I'll start negatively and then go positive. So again, I completely agree with you that it's really hard to find the weakest song on the album because it's so strong. I'm going to go with Baby I'm a Star because I think for me, it just hangs around a little bit too long. But you know, I, I, I really feel like I'm I'm picking hairs there. The best song on the album, and as you say, it's a fucking toughie because Purple Rain, the opener, beautiful ones we've not even talked about, you know, Darling Nikki, the, there's so much good on there, but one of my favourite Prince songs is When Doves Cry. I fucking adore it, and I can never, ever look past it. So it is, for me, the best song on the album. Yeah, okay. I, I um, We said this about Thriller last week. You can throw a blanket over the best songs yeah. in this album. And it, do you know what I mean? It's um, phenomenal. So, fine. I have no issue with that. Okay. I guess it's time to get down to brass tacks and score these two albums. Tough. Yeah, tough. So, I'm going to go second on Purple Rain because it's my choice. So, should I go first on Thriller? Okay. So, Thriller. Nine tracks four of which are fucking phenomenal. Three of those four, as we said last week, they are rightly lauded as amongst the greatest pop songs ever recorded. And as a run of three tracks on an album, I don't think either of us could think of a of a better run of three. So there is that to take into consideration. There is also the cultural impact that we talked about and the commercial success of the album. It's the biggest selling album of all time. And from previous clashes, we know that this is something I do take into consideration when I score. It changed the music industry forever. 
But so that's four tracks. There's two tracks that are pretty good. I quite like them. And then there's three that for me really bring the album down. And the drop off at the end of the album is huge from what you've had before. And okay, it would be trite of me to say that while you should be maintaining the level of Beat It and Thriller and Billie Jean all the way through the album, because you're not going to do that. But there are surely better songs out there than The Girl Is Mine, Lady In My Life, etc. So anyway, this could have been one of the greatest albums, if not the greatest album of all time, but it isn't. To me, it's not even Michael Jackson's best album, which is off the wall as far as I'm concerned. So... I have to take that into consideration, but I also have to think about, as I say, the success, the cultural impact, all that stuff. So I'm going to go seven and a half out of 10 for Thriller. How about you? So I agree with you that it is a flawed album. It is not perfect. However, the peaks of this album are beyond what most artists would achieve in a lifetime. So you've got you've got to recognise that. I am maybe a little more softer to it than you. There are more songs on it that I like, but without question, you are you are right. It's a hell of a drop off after those peaks. And whilst I like Pretty Young Thing, you're not even scaling anywhere near where you've been. So I actually agree with you on your scoring, and I would agree that it's a seven and a half. Okay, so fifth. Yeah, 15. Yeah, the thriller. Solid score. It is. And as much as we were shocked at the 7.2 that um, Pitchfork gave it, we've not come that far away from it. No, we we haven't, actually. (laughs) All right, on to Purple Rain, and I will let you go first, Kevin. Okay. This album is far more consistent. There's very little filler, and there's a lot of killer. It starts so well. It ends really well your usual kind of album filler tracks, there's something going on, like even if you don't particularly like them, there's interest, there's musicality, there's there's something clever being done. It's a fantastic piece of work. It is one of the best albums that we've we've looked at. So I will I will go and give this a nine out of ten. Okay. Nine out of ten. So for me, I, I... I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to remove most suspense here. I agree with most of what you said there. I fucking love Purple Rain. And I have done since I heard it. Well, as I said, I can't tell you exactly when I heard it, but I've loved it for a very long time anyway. It's got funk. It's got rock. It's got pop. It's got ballads. It's got everything. And it's got everything packed into nine songs. Yes, you are absolutely right. The consistency of Purple Rain is much higher than Thriller is. I would say that Thriller has much higher peaks, much higher high points. I don't think you can argue that, given what we talked about. But the low points on Purple Rain are nowhere near as low and are far fewer, most importantly. This was the first showcase of Prince's genius. It's not even his best album because Sign of the Times was three years after this. I mean, fucking hell. Anyway. Yeah, well, 
and again, you've got to look at the commercial success of it. And it wasn't thriller, but you know, 30 million copies sold, all those awards, an Oscar, the fact that it remained at the centerpiece of his live performances for the rest of his career. I'm comparing this to other albums we've reviewed. I mean, it's winning. It's winning. So sorry, again, suspense is gone. Can I give it a nine? Do I think this is as good as Sgt. Pepper's, as Amazing Grace, as Falls in Prison, etc., etc.? It's very close. Eight and a half. Just to be contrary, eight and a half. Fair but enough. but I, that's just me being a dick. <laughs> it's unlike you. It's still one. It's still yeah, one. It's, it's one by it, man. 17 yeah. and a half. So, yeah. I genuinely didn't think when we were coming into this class that that's where we'd land. Nor did I. Anyway, Purple Rain by Prince of the Revolution wins this clash. And now for the final chapter <laughs> of Le Boeuf. <laughs> and at least in my opinion, <laughs> the best, it's my favourite one. <laughs> so, chapter seven, the concluding chapter, I call... Base face. Oh, God. <laughs> and this, we come to as modern as 2006. <laughs> 20 odd years after both these albums have been released. So, this is according to Steve Nopper from Rolling Stone, who recounts a story told to him by the most reliable of narrators, Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas. Okay, I am already calling bullshit. <laughs> Okay, so this comes from so Prince in 2006. He was doing a, a residency in Las Vegas, at which Will I Am was a guest performer, a supporting act, I guess, is, is what people would normally say. Will I Am was friends with Michael Jackson, and so he arranged for Michael to attend one of the shows. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure I can even read this. <laughs> so, according to Steve Nopper's stroke, Will I Am. This is a quote. There was a point during the show where Prince came out into the audience with his giant bass. He walked right up to Michael and started playing bass in Michael's face. Like aggressive slap bass. <laughs> An outraged, indignant Michael Jackson apparently later told Will I Am, Prince has always been a meanie. He's just a big meanie. He's always not been nice to me. Everybody says Prince is the great Renaissance man, and I'm just a song and dance man. But I wrote Billie Jean and We Are the World. I'm a songwriter too. I mean, Michael, if you're going to talk about the songs you've written, do not claim We Are the World as one of the greats. Yeah, you had Beta in your back in your back catalogue. <laughs> anyway. That is the concluding chant. <laughs> I don't care if it's bothering going up to him playing the playing the bass in his face. It's, to me, it's the aggressive slap. <laughs> Look, if you thought that was aggressive, maybe uh, he's not. He's clearly not team level forty-two. <laughs> Mark King in the Cobra Kai dojo of bass playing. <laughs> Plectrums have no place in this dojo. <laughs> no sensei. <laughs> uh, Kev, what are we doing next time? <laughs> <laughs> 
So our next, our next time, we are going to conclude our beef season and open up a new season. Oh, okay. And we will return to one of our old favourites as well. So our old friend, Mr. Noel Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> so we will do What's the Story Morning Glory. Oh, of course. So I already know what it's going up against. Just from that, just from that, it's, yeah, okay. And we are going to do it up against... The Great Escape by Blur. Okay, so we're going back to 1995. Looking forward to that. But I think we have a little surprise in store, a little treat in store for the people who've stuck with us for so long as well. So we've got a little bit of a bonus episode coming up, Kev. Do you want to describe what that is going to be? So we're going to do some bonus beef. So what would you describe as bonus beef? Is that when you order a double cheeseburger? They accidentally give you a triple cheeseburger. Indeed. Or you get you get the wrong order and you're expecting a Big Mac, but you get a little 99p cheeseburger in there as well. Oh, lovely stuff. <laughs> so we we are going to do a bonus episode, which is not going to be album-based. Ooh. So it will be related to beef and essentially response songs. We will look at various, various songs where people have issues with each other and have replied to each other via song. I'm think, thinking of you, <laughs> Lennon McCartney. You've got some. Brilliant. So, yeah, so our next full clash is going to be, as Kev said, it's going to be What's the Story, Morning Glory by Oasis versus The Great Escape by Blur. So there's your homework. There's your research. We have a bonus episode, which is going to be reply songs, battle songs, all that stuff. Uh, great stuff. So I'm looking forward to both of those. And, and uh, yeah, battle songs, they say, there's there's a lot we can get into there. Very much so. Yeah, uh, the last thing um, for me to do, really, is to do our usual outro. So Twitter, it's a place where ex-presidents can't post still. <laughs> Poor Jimmy Carter. <laughs> as long as you are as long as you're not an ex-president then um or a dead president either um you can see find i was us... thinking point break there when you said an ex-president i was just <laughs> yeah i thought you were so um so yeah you can find us on the twitter at clash album if you like quality content that is uh well curated and consistently posted uh you can find us on our insta at clash album or if you are resolutely old school, you can always find us at albumclash at gmail.com. Where you can threaten to murder either myself or Kevin. I don't mind which, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> As always, guys, really great that people are still listening to this. It means the world to us. We're enjoying doing this. And uh, if if anyone on this planet is enjoying listening to us, then it's all worth it so thank you very much and yeah and especially for you american listeners who are learning uh, so many random esoteric things from british culture in between the 80s and 90s uh, uh, and so, what the word nodder means as well yeah you've learned about <laughs> nodders you've learned about cuprinol you know you, you get you get the full the full gamut but we didn't tell you what purple aki was. We made you search that. <laughs> yeah, because you need to. Yeah, you do. So, yeah, thanks very much, everyone. We shall see you next time. Go and listen to Blur and Oasis. And uh, we'll have our bonus episode in the meantime about battle songs. 
until then, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Take care, Tim. Forever. Bye.